Could awkwardness actually be a superpower? It's what we're going to talk about today with TEDx speaker and author Hina Pryor on how awkwardness could be a competitive advantage. My name's Jake Thompson. I'm a speaker, author, and most importantly, your chief encouragement officer. Welcome to the Compete Everyday Podcast. Welcome or welcome back to the show, Competitor Nation. Jake here, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and excited to introduce you to my new friend today, Hannah Pryor. She is a workplace performance expert, but more than that, she has learned how to harness the power of awkward in her career and why it could be the thing that changes your organization. Bear with me. We all have that awkwardness. We all got that inner nerd, as she says. And today's conversation is very applicable to what we're doing in our professional lives to compete for not only our trajectory, but those we're managing and leading on a daily basis. So you will want to sit through this entire show and then make sure that you watch Henna's TEDx talk after the episode so you can dive in further into this topic. If you haven't had a chance to head on over to CompeteEveryday.com since the holiday season, I want to encourage you to check out our latest release, Steadfast. Steadfast is designed to remind you that whatever storm you're facing, you have the opportunity to weather it, to endure it, and to eventually conquer it. Storms in life are inevitable. We don't determine them. We're heading into economic storms. We've headed into personal life storms or maybe health storms. There's things that are in front of us, adversities, challenges, many times failures we're having to pick ourselves up from. And when we enter these storms, you can choose to be like most of society, stick your head in the sand or below deck in this case, and hope it goes away. You can bend to the wind. You can stay knocked down. Or you can be the competitor who chooses to be steadfast and continue showing up and pressing forward in the headwinds. The fragile break when the wind blows strong enough. The strong continue to press forward. And we created this shirt to remind you that storms in life are inevitable. And it's your choice whether you will be steadfast or whether you will sink. Whether you will show up and compete or whether you will submit. And we want to encourage you that no matter what storms you face in 2023, financial, career, relational, that you have what it takes to continue moving through it. It takes the daily choice of waking up and choosing to compete every day. So if this sounds like a message you want to encourage yourself with, if this is something that you want to empower someone else with, Head on over to CompeteEveryday.com. Use the word podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We'll get you 15% off this item or any item in the store. That's promo code podcast for 15% off any item at CompeteEveryday.com. It helps keep this coffee cup full, this show continuing to run now that we're 600 plus episodes in the bank and us to continue to encourage, empower, and most of all, equip you as competitors on how you can show up and compete for your best life. Now, let's talk about awkwardness. Let's talk about comic books, Dungeons and Dragons, all things that most people don't want their coworkers to know about, but why it might not be a bad thing if they do. With my new friend, Hannah Pryor. 
Yes. Uh, no awkwardness today. We're, we'll talk a little bit about awkwardness and what that has to do with it, but I'm looking forward to this. We've got, as we just laughed on air, like we've been encircling each other through networks and a zillion different friends and connections. And I have been looking forward to this conversation since we first connected. How did we connect on social? Who was our first contact? Was it Colin? Uh, it was a mix of Colin, heroic public speaking. Yeah. And then I think after those two things kind of started to merge, I noticed that everywhere our names else. showed up everywhere else together too. Everywhere so, else. Yes. Around. Yeah. And I, and I love it because you have a, you and I are both kind of in that speaking world, but you have an, a very different experience than I do uh, when it comes to work experience and what you talk about. And so I want to dive mm -hmm. into that, but before we do, you could describe, I would say life today. What does it look like mm. for you in like a one to two sentence? Where, where are you from? What's family? Yeah. What do you do for fun when you're not traveling the world, helping companies? Oh gosh. Okay. So, uh, where I'm from born and raised in the small and mighty state of Delaware currently live in Philadelphia Metro. So I'm in a suburb South of the city. There's lots of woods. I don't live in Philly proper. I am married to a wonderful man named Ian. I've got a daughter who is in seventh grade and a son who is in fifth grade. They are at the world's best ages. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> they are super self-sufficient. So all I get to do is enjoy them. Uh, and it's funny. You said, what do you like to do when you're not traveling the world for speaking gigs? If I could tell you my number one value in life, it is traveling the world. So ideally it's doing that, you know, with family, with friends while not having work obligations. But, you know, my number one goal in life is to see every corner of this earth and experience it. And, and travel is a, uh, that's up there for me. So it's what's the uh, in the next two years, what's kind of yeah. the target bucket list spot for you? Oh, I, yeah, it's funny in that in the travel sense, I don't believe in bucket lists. It's more of a, you know, it's going to happen, not like a, okay. if it happens, but when um, we've now gone on our third reschedule of a family trip to Amsterdam, we tried twice during COVID, uh, believe it or not, very family friendly place, although people okay. would not immediately <laughs> make that connection. It is very family friendly and uh, really would like to get the whole family out to South Africa. That's very high on my list. I love it. I love it. Well, you are, we've talked a little bit about the speaking world and what kind of teasing it a little bit of what you're doing, mm -hmm. but you spent 14 or so years in staffing and mm -hmm. recruiting. Tell me uh, one, what led you into that industry? And then ultimately what kind of led you out into the work you're doing now? Yeah, it's a great question. So without going too much into my origin story, I will give you the quick I'm a firstborn child of immigrant parents. You know, my dad was born in India. My mom was born in Pakistan. My choices, while they would fight me on this, but I will fight them back. My menu of choices from a vocation standpoint was very strongly encouraged to be doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? Yep. Which of the three would you like to be? And so I, uh, you know, peacefully fought them and said, how about finance? Can we do that? You know, finance or accounting? They're like, okay, acceptable. Fourth option. Yes, we'll do this. So I actually was a former big four public accountant. I worked for Ernst & Young for several years out of college, uh, made my very best friends in the world there. Anyone who meets me will not be surprised to learn I do not have the personality of an auditor, right? That was not the career for me. Never and would have, I never would have picked that up on in no. our conversations. No, I mean, I'm good at math, but didn't enjoy it at any <laughs> modicum of anything. So uh, 
I had actually a former manager at EY who went to K-Force, which is the staffing firm that I went to. She said, why don't you become a finance and accounting recruiter? You can talk to people all day. It's sales. I think you'd be really good at it. And of course, the firstborn child of immigrants is like, no, no, I'm a CPA. I got my master's in accounting. I couldn't possibly do this. And at that time, the job market was so good that I was like, why the hell not? Right? Let's give this a go. Turns out staffing was apparently the job I was born to do. So I used that accounting and finance skill set, moved into a job that was entirely working with people, working with leaders, working with companies, teams. And I loved every second. So 14 years of that. And it was honestly the greatest career I could have asked for. I didn't know that people in sales could make what they made in their early 20s if they worked hard enough and were good at it. And so it was a blessing in so many ways until, you know, those last two years, I think in staffing. So about year 12, I started to feel the itch of, okay, I'm telling my candidates and my clients to take risks, to play bigger, to play into their full potential. And I knew deep down I had more in me to give than what I was accepting in that career. And once that itch became so loud that I couldn't not scratch it, I, in late 2019, made the jump to do my own thing and speaking, coaching where I am today. So I'm gonna, I want to ask you a couple of things about that. The first is, and I've heard you, you hinted at it a few times and I've heard Mm -hmm. it from other people as well. Growing up uh, as the daughter of immigrant parents, the risk aversion, the Mm -hmm. safety of medical law engineering Yeah. Talk to me. A lot of people see that, you know, oh, it's held you back, but there's aspects to growing up in that culture as well. That's been very advantageous to your growth and development. And I'm curious if you could speak to that a little bit about what your unique upbringing has allowed you to do or allowed you to learn that perhaps isn't seen as much in those that those of us that didn't grow up with immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh. I'm so grateful for growing up in the household that I did. You know, I think it's It's easy to talk about the ways that, you know, any of us with that shared experience may have felt slightly boxed in, but my God, you know, I looked at my two parents who came to this country with absolutely nothing. And and my mom, my mom was fairly middle-class in Pakistan. I'll give her that. But she was 17 when she married my father, who was 30. So they have a 13 year age difference. They exchanged one letter. They got married. They came to America. That's my parents' story of starting in this country. My dad was properly poor. He grew up with nothing in India on his birthday. He got, you know, a packet of Skittles. That was it. So what they showed me day in and day out in my upbringing was what work ethic and what consistency and what showing up every day can create. You know, I didn't want for anything in my childhood. We were comfortably middle-class. We lived in a nice neighborhood. We, you know, over time went on vacations. My love of travel comes from them. You know, we've been to lots of countries as a family. And so ultimately what I found was most impactful being raised in that household was seeing what is possible with enough consistency, determination. They made everything happen with, with nothing to start from, no silver spoon. And I'm appreciative for that. So, yeah, so I, I want to pull a couple more just because I'm curious now, even though you might not have thought we were going to go this way. You That's said fine. they exchanged one letter and yeah. then Mary moved. Okay, so that, yeah. people listening, if, if you didn't catch that, this isn't like reality TV that we see uh, the, no. the love at first sight. But are your parents still married today? They're still married today, happily still married, ma- yeah. Which is 
which is fascinating when you look at our culture as a whole, because we have a 50 plus percent divorce rate. Yeah. Uh, everybody's on the next dating app searching for the next dopamine high rush versus the long-term commitment aspect. Talk to me as, as someone who is a parent who is married, what's something that stood out about watching your parents' relationship grow, knowing obviously the age gap, but the brief didn't know each other hardly at all. And then yeah. we're in it for life. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. There's, there's a lot I've learned from watching my parents' relationship and, you know, without, you know, without airing too much of their dirty laundry, obviously, you know, nothing is perfect. And I don't think that's going to be surprising to anyone. They had, you know, bumps in the road. I was born fairly quickly after they got married. I, you know, my parents got married within 11 months I was born. Okay. So they had two months of essentially being yeah. a, a new couple that barely knew each other and then becoming a family. But what is often the case of arranged marriages like theirs, and I've seen it with their marriage and that of their friends, is that you go into that experience with a very different mentality. You go into the experience where you know that you will be putting in the work to find commonalities, to find ways that you can make each other better, to find compromise, to find opportunities to meet in the middle where they otherwise wouldn't exist with someone who you didn't have the same high stakes attachment to. And so I think one thing that I really admire about marriages like theirs is just, there's never really been a wavering on the commitment that they made in that early day to push through adversity and make it work no matter what circumstance was thrown their way. And I do feel, I feel the need to make a disclaimer. This isn't to say that you should stay with someone that you absolutely have zero compatibility with and you hate. I think sometimes people unfairly say, oh, they forced you to marry so-and-so. That is not how it works in our cultures. It is not a forced issue, but there is a greater tolerance for pushing through differences and compromise and absorbing you know, what is difficult and turning it into a catalyst for that next phase of growth in a marriage. And I think that that, emphasis has served them extremely well. And it's such a good model for, for me. Well, and I would also echo to that point based on seeing things in, in culture today, you mentioned it perfectly. They went in with a different intentionality and mm -hmm. mindset for the relationship. And it's not the one of I'm expecting this other person to complete me or make me happy. No. And that is where a lot of people I mean, even struggle in other areas, they look for the job to make them fulfilled as a person versus, you know, their self, their own self-worth and how they see themselves. And so they're looking for other things to kind of fill that void. So I really appreciate you sharing that. The other question, just out of pure curiosity, because yeah. we also run a, a podcast for parents called Raising Competitors, is yeah. how do you, we know every parent's love or passion is to make life better and easier for their kids. Sure. But we also know at the same time that hard times make strong people, strong people make good times, good times make weak people on and on. How mm -hmm. do you continue to teach your kids the, or your kids, the importance of that work ethic and that drive, knowing that they're mm -hmm. growing up in a very different experience than you did and, and very, very different than their grandparents did. Mm -hmm. I love that you have a podcast on this because to me, this is such a a topic that I share your passion around. How do we, in a world where our kids, you know, for better or worse, are better off in a lot of ways or have more available to them, the modern parent's job, and I don't want to speak in absolutes, everyone's got different levels of privilege and resources and whatnot, but for those of us who are lucky enough to be in the middle class and up, 
and don't struggle the way, you know, my immigrant parents did. I think what comes to mind is just the level of intentionality around creating opportunities for our kids to struggle. You know, I, I really believe in this deliberate discomfort, a little bit of deliberate micro stressor so that we can build the muscle, even if it's not naturally thrown their way. And also making sure we prime them to look for it. So one of our dinner table questions is, you know, I'll give you all three, but it's what was the best part of your day? What's something new you learned? But then my favorite one is what gave you butterflies today? You know, what gave you butterflies today is the what's something that you did that was kind of hard, kind of scary, kind of made you nervous. And if they say nothing, you know, we don't go on a public, you know, Cersei Lannister shame, shame thing, but, <laughs> but we do say, did you look, were you looking, right? Were you looking for opportunities to give yourself a little bit of a challenge? We want to try to find those butterflies and we do celebrate that answer more loudly and more robustly than we do the other two, because we're trying to frame it as look for this stuff. Don't take the easy road. Don't take the paved path. Right. And I, I hope that that reinforcement encourages them to look for it. And now when they come home and they're like, mom, I had huge butterflies today. I did this thing and it was really scary. I love that they know that I'm going to be super excited about that. It's created a little bit of a, an environment in the home for embracing those things. I love that. Well, and, and I'm immediately struck to, we've talked about it here on this podcast. We, we actually just talked about it recently on the Raising a Predator show is the Sarah Blakely story with her dad mm -hmm. of like, where did you fail today? Yes. And I yeah. thought about that. I love how you frame your questions of like, where'd you feel a little bit of that discomfort in your stomach and, and try something. And I think that's a, a perfect segue into some of the work you're doing, because I know your TEDx talk uh, that recently came out is why awkwardness yeah. is your secret weapon for risk-taking at work. Let's talk about awkwardness at work, because I immediately think of SNL, uh, Molly, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on, you Molly know, who Shannon? I'm Molly, Molly Shannon. Shannon's character. Yeah. Yes. That's where I go to when I think awkwardness or yeah. the office with Steve Carell, who is yeah one of my favorite characters of all time, but you're talking a little bit more of, of something else and why it's a superpower to, to have a little bit of that awkwardness in a space where most everybody's trying to protect themselves of their ego and how yeah. perfect they look. So talk to me, where did this idea of leveraging awkwardness start yeah. to create for you? And then talk to us a little bit about your TEDx talk, because I want to be able to tease folks of why they should go watch it. Right. I appreciate that. So actually, before I answer your question in my research for the book that's on this topic, I've actually found out that the office, the SNL you're talking about, it's actually a genre called cringe comedy. So that whole, you know, freaks and geeks, all of those are cringe comedy. Yep. It's the type of comedy that actually is making us feel that, Ooh, Oh God, been there. Right. That's how it's actually intended to make us feel, which is kind of a funny, very relatable emotion, but where did this all begin? Because I've been awkward to tell my whole life, <laughs> my whole life. Any perceived confidence that people see out of me still makes me laugh. You know, I, again, firstborn child of immigrants. I dressed weird. The food I brought to school smelled weird. I didn't listen to the same music. I didn't talk the same. My hair was strange. Like every part of me felt like the outcast, felt a little bit different growing up. And while I wasn't, you know, some social pariah, I didn't quite feel comfortable in my own skin for quite a long time. And I wouldn't say until college that I started to really 
figure out how to feel more at home in my own body and in my own language and my own everything. And I think what, what, what do you think contributed yeah. to that in college? I'm curious for those listening that yeah. maybe they're in their forties and they still feel sure. awkward to a degree. Yeah. Um, this is going to sound so simplistic, but finding your people, right. Finding your people. Here's, here's the best way to think about it. If you are in a room of 20 people and you love Dungeons and Dragons, like that is your thing. You love Dungeons and Dragons and nobody else does. You might feel a little awkward about that declaration about how much you love Dungeons and Dragons. But if suddenly you're in a room with 20 people who love Dungeons and Dragons, you don't feel awkward at all. You feel just fine. Your entire self feels very free to be that person in that room. I think in college, you know, whether it was good fortune or whether it was looking for those people, I started to find my people who I could be entirely myself around. And I think all of a sudden I had this freedom, this permission to be my goofy, awkward, inelegant, stumbly, snorting, you know, like I could just be that person. And it was so freeing. It was so freeing to not pretend or chase approval the way I had for all the years leading up to that. I love, well, I love that in the Dungeons and Dragons example. I, I loved the, I do something in one of my keynotes with teams where I, I tease the Contra code, the old Nintendo of mm-hmm. up, down, yeah. down. And I ask, like, I just put the code up there. I'm like, who, who knows this? Does anybody know what this is? Yeah. And it's silence for a minute. And then occasionally, like I had one room and it was like four or 500 people. And this yeah. guy in the back, I know, I was a little uncomfortable. He's yeah. like, it's the cheat code for Contra. And I said, you're right. And somebody else goes, I knew it. And, and then all of a sudden they're talking about a video game. Mm-hmm. And the one guy was like terrified to answer it because he was like, I'm going to be seen as this awkward person in my company. Yeah. But there's one connection in that because they connected yeah. just as you said, you found your people, but there's something to it in terms of our professional lives too. Mm-hmm. So talk yeah, to me I think- about that. The big distinction I need to make with the word is I think not dissimilar to the way you teed it up. Most people hear the word awkward and they immediately think of social awkwardness in a person. You know, I'm not just talking about social awkwardness. I'm talking about life's inherent awkwardness. You know, the awkward conversation, the awkward negotiation, the awkward run-in. You know, we can feel awkward when we know something that someone else doesn't, right? Oh, we're talking to so-and-so about a promotion. He doesn't know he's getting fired next week, right? That's awkward. You know, there's so many of these moments and what, you know, in the research for the book and some of the people I've been talking to and interviewing, what you come to realize is A, it is the most universal emotion that humans experience on a daily basis, weekly basis, you know, lifelong basis. Not one person, not even the most perceivably confident person we've ever seen has found the cure for awkwardness. There's no such thing. The most confident people haven't eliminated it or found the cure. They've just embraced it. They've leaned into it. They've become friends with it. They've fallen in love with it. So that's, that's part one. And part two is when it comes to our professional upbringing is I think a lot of this was born from, you know, I know both of us work in the leadership world a lot. I like many others, I'm a huge fangirl of Brene Brown and I love her work on vulnerability. And yet what I have observed with a lot of leaders is sort of two camps, one bucket of people who are really good at expressing authentic vulnerability that has transformative effects on their team. And then the other bucket of leaders who have been told vulnerability is important 
And so they kind of sugarcoat their conversations with this little faux vulnerability of, oh, we're laying you all off. And this is really hard for me. And everyone's like, nobody, like you're fine. You're, you're still yeah. sitting on your stack of cash. This is it, it, not, not buying this, right? And so to me, awkwardness is also the willingness to stay in this stumbly, fumbly, imperfect, inelegant, messy middle to say, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say right now. And I'm going to get it wrong. And this feels awkward as hell because I don't have the words. That's powerful. And I feel like if we can't build that muscle first, getting to true authentic vulnerability is at best a reach, at worst, a misstep. They're not getting it right. And so I want to stay here. I want to play in the gray area for a little bit longer. Well, there's something to that as well is because people don't connect with perfect. They connect with imperfections. And when you always guess, try to have this perfect buttoned up, there's no awkwardness, no silliness. Like everything looks like it's perfect with you. They'll never connect with you. And if they can't connect with you, it's hard to build trust. It's hard to lead. There's, there's a whole other thing there. What is kind of the, the balance though? Like, how do you, Mm -hmm. how do you walk that gray line of not being too awkward, but at the same time, like at least opening up yourself a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, what I have found again in the research and in my interviews is there's not as much concern about being too awkward, actually, as much as we think, obviously you can, you can overstep. There's always a such thing as over disclosure or being like, don't, don't get so much in my face that, you know, that it's uncomfortable, but I think most of us could stand to let a little bit of our imperfection show. Now, again, are there factors in this? Absolutely. Psychological safety being one, you know, this is harder for marginalized or underrepresented groups where a different standard of perfection is required to appear at the same level of the less marginalized groups, right? This isn't a blanket absolutes type of thing, but largely what we're talking about when we talk about awkwardness is not a full-on admission of, hey, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? It's not that. It's more just the the very natural and honest condition of, I don't know if I have this quite right. And I don't know if it's going to be pretty or perfect, but I'm going to try, right? Like I'd rather the messy action step than no step at all. And I think part of what the, the thesis I'm trying to create here is that embracing that awkwardness, the inherent awkwardness of situations that we're putting ourselves in, in the spirit of growth are not avoidable. It's, you know, leading, leaning into them and understanding that this is how it's going to feel. I'm going to cringe a little, I'm going to wince a little, I'm going to think, God, I'm really screwing this up is exactly how you should feel in the spirit of being braver. Like, I think some of us forget what brave is supposed to feel like. It's not supposed to feel easy. No, it's it. it, Courage is not courage. If you're unafraid. There's right. no fear if there's no risk. Right. Like, courage and bravery require a pit in your stomach, the yeah. risk, the, the yeah. fear, all of it. How can one of the things I know I want everybody listening to be able to to read or to read your book, obviously when it comes out, <laughs> to watch your TED talk uh, yeah. before they get a chance to get a, their hands on a copy of your book. But what are the things that like a leader can do today? Say, and not even the CEO, let's just say like managers and mid-level leaders that they can do to encourage at least some of that awkwardness within their own mm-hmm. micro ecosystem. Yeah, I love it. I'll give you some of my favorite strategies concretely. So 
you know, we talked about the Dungeons and Dragons example, which again, I, I don't play it, but I have friends who love it. So I'm not knocking Dungeons and Dragons, but Stranger one, Things had to bring it back when the last season was out. There had Stranger, to be a resurgence. It, it, Stranger Things con- continues to be the greatest. So yes. that is, uh, if that's wrong, I don't want to be right. Uh, what I, one of my favorite questions that I actually learned from a, a mutual friend of Colin and I named Travis Thomas favorite icebreaker question, beginning of a meeting, or if you're meeting people for the first time, I love the question, what kind of nerd are you? The reason this question is so powerful. Star Wars, Star Trek, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Right. Like I love really fancy chocolate. Like that is my, the thing I geek out over, like artisanal chocolate, like Colin loves sneakers, right? Like what, whatever it is, like but the, the framing of the question is intentional. It's not, do you nerd out over something, right? It's the open-ended, what kind of nerd are you? And again, kind of similar to your example that you gave in your session, it's this immediately connective, oh, we've all got a little bit of a thing, yeah. right? We've all got something. And that unique something never really gets that many chances in the light of day in a normal business setting to come out. So part of the way we can get more comfortable with what we think of our own social awkwardness or awkwardness to be is to just let it live, let it breathe and have space in the air. So that's, that's one opener I love. As far as other sort of business context stuff, you know, I think, you know, variations on five minutes at the top of the meeting for a bad idea brainstorm, right? I've, I've seen so many people, and I hate to say, but especially women have an idea sort of in the back of their throat that they kind of want to say, but they're like, nope, that's not right. It's going to feel awkward if it's not the right answer. If I get it wrong, I'm going to feel embarrassed. I'm going to cringe if it's not quite what they were looking for. But part of how leaders can create psychological safety for that, which is, by the way, how innovation happens when you start to create that space is say, hey, you know, five minutes, top of the meeting, you know, bad idea, brainstorm, nothing is off the table, let it fly. How do we normalize imperfect ideas? How do we normalize inelegant attempts? And that's creating space for it intentionally. People aren't going to do it if they don't know that it's okay. So I love carving out just a few minutes to make space for awkwardness, like intentional awkwardness. I love that. Well, and and for anyone listening, obviously we're going to be linking to Hannah's book when it comes out, but uh, the culture code that we've talked about Mm -hmm. here on the show before talks about this concept in relation to Pixar. And mm-hmm. bringing in those first drafts of those movies. And it's like, yeah. we're going to kind of rip it to shreds. Right. But it's okay because that's how we make it better. And we're okay that, it, oh, this wasn't very good, but let's talk about why it wasn't very good. And it's not that you're not good. It's, hey, this can be better. And it's a yeah. psychologically safe space to share ideas, to be willing to toss out bad ideas so that you can improve them. And so I love that. So for anyone listening that wants to kind of dive further and, uh, Coyle actually did, mm-hmm. I think I gave it to one of my clients. He did a workbook, a uh, culture code workbook that came out earlier this year. That's activities like this as well. Awesome. Um, so pairing that with his book and TEDx talk as well. <laughs> you also did a second TEDx talk, I if did. I remember correctly. What? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Tease, tease it up for us so that we can watch it on play next at, on YouTube. Awesome. No, yeah, it should be out. I was told it'll be faster this time. So within a month or two, but uh, the topic of that one is the new way to brag in the modern world and feel good doing it. So what is the through line? The through line is most people find bragging very awkward, 
right? They don't like the way it feels. It feels very unnatural. It feels clunky. And the reality is, and you know, again, the details will be in the full TEDx, but the reality is in this increasingly remote and hybrid world, actually taking a proactive effort towards bragging on ourselves is not only nice, it is required. We need to make our wins more visible. We are not in the same environments anymore where people over the cubicle can hear us have that huge success or have that huge win. And so the question that I aim to answer in the second one is how do we share our wins in a world that tells us bragging is bad? Which is in it. And I find, so one, I'm excited to watch it because Mm -hmm. I find that just fascinating in the culture we're in, given some discussions I've had recently, because you Mm -hmm. think about the work that we do in the leadership space, like you have to talk about the work you do, the success you've had with clients to show social proof when Mm -hmm. building and growing in sales with your business. And then you do it in a way because I've seen your work. And so I I'm assuming, but knowing our mutual friends, I have a very Mm -hmm. good idea of your intentions Mm -hmm. of the things you share designed to help people. No different than what we put out is designed to help and encourage people. And it's very different. Yeah. And a lot of people with the six and seven figure followers that are all about me. And yeah. Who's my ego. And so the culture sees that yeah. and associate, and I can imagine associates, well, when you talk about yourself, you're just like this person putting their butt on Instagram or yeah. bragging about no. this and that. And there's, it's a difference in intentionality. I would imagine that some of the research says, as well as how you go about talking about it. Yeah. So I'll give you, I'll, I'll tease up the thesis okay. and again, the, the detail will be in, but I'll give you, I'll give you the, the giveaway here. Ultimately, that's why we don't brag because we don't want to sound like that, right? We don't want to sound like that. We see the biggest braggart we know. And, you know, I say this in the TEDx, but I'll say it here too. We don't want to sound like him. And research suggests it's usually a him, right? Just on a numbers basis. I can name like five or six (laughs) right off the top of my head. Right, right. So that's why we don't do it, right? But we need to. So there's, there's research out of Stanford University. His name is Jack Nasher. He talks about the fact that competence doesn't speak for itself. And that in this world, especially, we need to verbalize our wins because ultimately, you know, you as someone who teaches people how to compete, even if you are outperforming the person next to you, you will be overshadowed by the person who is louder. Yep. Full stop. That's it. If you don't share your wins, you're not competing as well as you could be because you will be overshadowed by the person who is louder. doesn't matter if you're competing at a level 10 and they're at a level seven, if they're talking about it and you're doing quiet, you know head down, nobody sees it, nobody ever hears about it. And so the new research that's come out, which I get more into detail about, but I think I can just share it here, is that part of the huge key to being a good bragger, to actually doing it effectively, is actually not just you know, doing it on your own, it absolutely boils down to intention. So there's an intention piece and there's also an other piece. So you'll notice in my LinkedIn, and I'm, I'm saying this very humbly and with so much gratitude, I do brag on myself and somehow I don't have a million haters. And the reason I don't is because I do this other thing. The research out of George Mason found that if you combine self-promotion with other promotion, which they call dual promotion, it actually helps you come across as extremely competent and warm and likable, which is what we're afraid of dinging with the other kind of bragging. So essentially it's hype yourself up, and be a really loud vocal supporter of other people. That helps you be both, 
you become, you know, someone whose wins are visible and not an annoying <laughs> braggart that we want to quietly strangle because we can't stand it. I love, so I love that. And the, the image that just popped in my head is, is one that I'm always going to go back to because I grew up working in a gas station and I made a mm. post on LinkedIn the other day about being a gas station for others. You can be a drainer, you can be a gas station, you can fuel yeah, others that. up and get them going forward. Um, or you can drain them. And when I think about that, I think about having a big gas station sign. I used to have to change prices on, but yeah. it's big, bold. You can't help but seeing it. But yeah. at the same time, you're doing service for others, fueling them forward. So like, that's where my head goes when I hear you like talk about mm -hmm. that dual, dual sense. I love it. And that video, obviously when it airs, it's probably already live when this episode goes live, but if not, we'll be updating it in the show notes along with your other TEDx talk and your website. Yeah. But I know you love to play on social media as well. A lot of our I listeners do. are there. What is your yes. favorite platform and where's the best place to hang out with you? Yes. LinkedIn is definitely my favorite playground. It's where I spend the most time. So um, Hannah Pryor on LinkedIn. I don't think there's any others. You can find me there. I am on Instagram as well, but LinkedIn is my preferred playground. So Fantastic. find me there. And we will be linking to that in the show notes, along with the TEDx talk, both of them, yeah. uh, at least the one that we know is out, if not the next yes. one. And then if you're well behind the game, you're new to the Compete Everyday podcast, you're finding this a little bit later and you are starting on episode one and we are here at episode 602. Then when Hannah's book is out, we will be linking to it as well. So if you're listening to this after release date in January, you'll probably see some links there that we haven't talked about. But I'm just appreciative of your time today and enjoyed talking mm. awkwardness, dungeons and dragons. I think that's a first for the show, but like I could nerd out on comic books and video <laughs> games and stuff like I that all day. And I love it. I so love it. You. And I just want to honor you just, you know, again, our friendship is somewhat new, but from what I've watched of you is your ability to just show up every day. I, I can tell that you are someone who doesn't prioritize perfection and prioritizes consistency and you know regularity and that is why you are at episode 602 which is amazing you know I, that that's not a small feat no one does that if they're paralyzed by perfection that's not possible and so kudos to you for embracing the awkward process of anything like this and just sticking with it that's awesome thank you a lot a lot of years chasing the popularity and perfection and realizing <laughs> sure. it was a losing game yes. and just saying you're never going to have it perfect and just figure it out in fact i actually started recording the podcast in December of 16 when wow. I started HPS. No way. So I was around the same time. It was a way to kind of, for those listening, heroic public speaking is, is one of the programs that I went through and, and Hannah went through, which is one mm -hmm. of her little small world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just started using it as a place to source and create content and, and all that. So it was, uh, it was fun. It was a fun, uh, just, I would say venture that has gone a lot farther than I ever expected awesome. it to and created some great, great new connections and friends. So mm -hmm. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining the show. Listeners, be sure to connect with her on LinkedIn, follow her, check out the links here in the show notes to watch her TEDx talk. You will not be disappointed with just the energy and way she delivers uh, just her message. It's phenomenal. And then if you're interested in working with her, learning out more about what she does in the workplace for as a performance expert, you'll see a link to her website in the notes. Appreciate you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get plugged into Competitor Nation, find more episodes, pick up your next favorite shirt or tank, 
or find out ways how we can work together through my speaking and coaching programs, visit CompeteEveryday.com.